0: son. We pray a blessing on this now. I pray that you'd sustain us through your word as we, your people, hope and wait for you. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. I want to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I'm not going to dismiss Hubtown Kids. As, uh, as our brother Jason said, today is family fifth Sunday, and so we're asking all the, the kiddos that would normally be dispersed and rescued from uh, tyranny to stay in their seats. Kids, we want you to know that we love you. We're glad that you're here, and uh, we want you to know that what happens on Sunday morning with you in uh, Hubtown Kids is not babysitting uh, it's it's the, the church collectively working to disciple you, to raise you up, just as God has commanded us to do, to raise you up in the nurture and admonition of Jesus. And so uh, we know, we want you to know that what you experience in Hubtown Kids Gray Station and Blue Station is a wonderful thing, and yet this is your future, uh, sad as it may appear. Uh, gathering together as one body to make much of Jesus, to hear his word preached, and uh, and to praise Him. And so I'm glad that you're here. I hope that it's not too painful for you. And uh, if you if you fall asleep, I won't judge you. I'll try to ask you questions and interact with you a little bit throughout the morning. And there may be prizes, but there's probably not. Before we jump in this morning, I want to just say, if you want to stand up and leave this morning and head out to the, the bookstall, not leave actually, but leave the auditorium and head to the bookstall, you'll find on there a, uh, a, a series of, um, of copies of the book of Hebrews from the ESV Study Bible. It's just one copy of uh, the journaling edition of the book of Hebrews. It would be a great uh, resource for you to have as we slowly work through um, the book of Hebrews together. Um, If you already have a copy of that, will you just proudly, but also humbly, just raise that in the air and and shake it just a little bit. Okay, there's a few of you that already have one. So if you don't want to be a loser, just kidding. Uh, If you want to get up even right now and go get one, you're not going to miss a whole, whole lot. uh, And you can make it back as quick as possible. And then you can just throw your gift uh, in in, uh, response to that book in the giving box. Um, Also, you can order them on Amazon if they're all gone. Last I checked, there was seven or eight on there. You can always get it after the service today. We'll be in Hebrews for quite some time. This morning we're beginning. uh, We've come to the the precipice of Hebrews. We've read the entire book together, and that was an an exciting and interesting worship service. This morning we've come to the edge of the ski slope, and we're peering over, and we're about to begin our descent. It will be uh, fast. It will be glorious. It will be exhilarating. And in the end, I think at the bottom, we'll all enjoy the fact that we got to know our Lord and Savior that much greater. That's my hope. I hope it's yours as well. And so if you've got your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, you're welcome to use the black hardback Bible that's in front of you. I did look it up today. Uh, We're going to be looking at page 1187. Page 1187. I'm just going to be looking at a few verses. Now as you're turning there, let me just say this. Some... Some Christians or commentators have looked at the first few verses, particularly the ones that we're going to be addressing this morning. um, They've looked at them almost as though they're a thesis statement for the book of Hebrews. And, And I don't think that's far off, but it's much more than a thesis statement. I would argue that the first few verses of the book of Hebrews is more of an overture. It introduces the themes of the complete artistic set that is this book, and it begins to make us familiar with the ideas that we're going to be revisiting throughout the production or throughout the sermon series. And so, think of it in that way. It's not exhaustive by any means, but it does begin to help us see the direction and feel of this book. And so without any further ado, let's just jump right in. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what the Word of God says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, again, we briefly, maybe even repetitiously, just stop. And we ask you to do the work that only you can do. Father, we're feeble in our speaking and in our hearing. And besides all this, you are the one who has spoken. Father, help us to listen. Help us to understand. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The main idea for this morning is not from our covenant. The main idea this morning is this. I want to offer to you, listen to and adore the Son who is supreme. I think this is what God is communicating very clearly to us this morning. We are to listen to and adore the Son who is supreme supreme. As we work through the text this morning, I think you'll come to see these 2 subpoints clearly rising to the surface, and that is, number one, that God is speaking, let us listen. God is speaking, let us listen. And two, Jesus is presented, let us adore him. Jesus is presented, let us adore him. And so without any further ado, let's jump in The first part, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I love the way that this book begins. It begins like many other books in the Bible. I'm thinking mainly of the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. It begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no defense of the existence of God. God doesn't need to be defended. He shows up and lets us know what exactly has happened John is the same way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And here, Hebrews is no different. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see, God knows that God is the center of the universe. He doesn't come to us addressing your particular position and your history. He comes telling us his history and lets us know ours. He's the center of the universe. All things exist by him and are ultimately for him. And it's fitting that this book that we're jumping into begin by demonstrating the weight of his glory, by beginning to tell us about what he has done in creation. God exists. The book of Hebrews tells us that if we're to please God, we're to come to God knowing that God is and that God is a rewarder. I love the way that it's worded, that God is Hebrews begins this way, God is. But it goes on to say that the God that is, the great I am, has also spoken. It says that God has spoken at many times and in many ways to many different people and things. God spoke. It's an incredible reality, one that we often assume, that the creator of this world that is existing for all of eternity outside of time, space, And matter that he would speak into it what grace he owes us nothing we don't deserve to hear his voice we don't deserve to hold his words matter of fact we don't even demand it or request it he's given it to us freely he's spoken to us and in the past how has he spoken he's spoken in visions he's spoken to people through angels through donkeys even and many other means. He spoke in creation, bringing the world into existence. He spoke to Abraham, creating a people for himself. He spoke to Jacob. He spoke to Moses, giving the law. He spoke to the congregation, as the law was given to them. He spoke to David and many others. Time would fail for me to tell of all the other ones. But The Word of God came to them. And it was indeed His Word. Second Peter. Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 remind us of that. It tells us there, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not somebody's own idea. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this introductory remark is just that. It's an introductory remark, and it's setting up the idea that God spoke in the past, but now he's speaking differently, but he doesn't want us to forget the importance. He doesn't want to erode the weight of God speaking prior. Paul, speaking to Timothy, challenged him. This brother who had become aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ had seen the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament in the person and work of Christ who was shepherding that great church in Ephesus that we know so much about of the many churches listed. We know so much about Timothy's church. And there, this brother that's leading that church has been commanded by Paul, challenged by Paul to do what? Continue in the things that you have learned. He says, Timothy, you were were taught by your grandmother. You were taught by your sweet mother, They opened the Old Testament to you, and they instructed you. Don't walk away from those things. Don't forget those sacred writings, those things that you learned from a child. Continue in them. He says they're able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the comments that are first listed there, that God spoke in time past, it doesn't overshadow what he's speaking now Nor does it become irrelevant. It only segues and supports what we hear God saying now. And what is God saying? How is God saying? How is He speaking? Look at verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The book of Hebrews is written to a, a group of believers that not only knew the Old Testament, but held them dearly, or the Old Testament, but held them dear. Any Jew in those days hearing the the phrase last days would understand them in a messianic context. They would understand that the last days were when the promised Messiah would come. That's what all of the followers of God by faith were looking forward towards. The last days when the Messiah would come. And so now we hear in verse 2, But in these last days, in the days of the Messiah... He, God, he's still the subject, by the way, both in verse 1 and in verse 2. He has spoken to us by his Son. Here we come to what theologians refer to as continuity forward slash discontinuity that phrase or that statement is helping us to understand that you got God speaking in times past through in many ways to many people to the prophets through the or to the forefathers through the prophets and and then there's this God speaking now by his son. And so if we compare there's some things that are are alike and there's some things that are dislike between those two statements. The things that are alike that God has spoken. He had spoken to the through the prophets, to the people, to the fathers. And now in these last days, He again has spoken by His Son. And so that's the continuity. That's the way that it's the same. God, in fact, spoke through the prophets, and now He's speaking through the Son. The new message through the Son does not make the old message irrelevant, not in the slightest. It's only a fulfillment. But there's also a discontinuity. There's a way in which these two statements that are parallel to one another are different and the way that they are different. The discontinuity lies in the uniqueness of the Son. You see, it says that he spoke in many ways through the prophets, plural. But today, he has spoken through the Son. Many prophets in the past, and now there is the Son. And so the discontinuity is that there's a finality. There's an ultimate nature to the revelation of God to his people by his Son, It's different. The Word of God is revealed to us. We hold it in our hands and there is nothing more for God to give to us. There's nothing more that we need to understand. The Word of God is sufficient. The scriptures tell us that it's quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword you'll remember from this past week. The great Puritan Preacher and pastor Owen, he wisely and biblically addressed the notion that there is more revelation that's necessary for you, Christian. This is what he says. A bit on the nose. If their private revelations agree with Scripture, they are needless. And if they disagree, they are false. What we have given to us by God, the revelation of Jesus Christ from the Father, is all we need. And whatever notions you have in your mind that agree with Scripture are needless. And whatever is against it is indeed false. The Puritans are helpful when they, uh, in helping us to think clearly. I, I wanted to also uh, offer to you another uh, quote by one of the, the, the great Puritans. This is from William Perkins. He offers a syllogism, and you'll see what that means. And he, sub- he summarizes the completed work of the revelation of God. This is what he says, first the major premise, then the minor pre- premise, and then the conclusion. He says, Major premise the true Messiah shall be both God and man, and from the seed of David. He shall be born of his heavenly Father's bosom. He shall satisfy the law and shall offer himself as a sacrifice for all the faithful, uh, the, for the sins of all the faithful. He shall conquer death by dying and rising again. He shall ascend into heaven, and in due time he shall return for judgment. This is the major premise, which is essentially a Just a gathering of the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, the prophecies that were given to the prophets, that then give them to the fathers, as we read. That's the major premise. What about the minor premise? Well, here it is: that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Mary, meets all of those requirements. And so here's this list, and here's Jesus who fulfills all of those things on the list. And so, what is the conclusion? Perkins offers this, therefore Jesus is the true Messiah. There's nothing more. The Old Testament prophesied what the New Testament demonstrates, it fulfilled. And what else do we need? It's the end of the story in a sense. There's nothing more to say. The New Testament confirms that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. God spoke in times past and now he has spoken through his Son who is the fulfillment of all things. And Hebrews has much in common with the beginning of the Gospel of John, as I already pointed out. John really is addressing a Greek culture, addressing this idea of the Logos, the incarnate wisdom of God, which is Jesus himself, the Son of God. He says there in John chapter 1, verses 1-5, through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In this Greek way, John says exactly what we hear in this Hebrews way. Here's the simple first point. The main thing that we've got to get as we look at verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2 That God is speaking, that God has in fact spoken, and because of that, how should we respond? Brothers and sisters, we should respond by listening. We should respond by listening. That God speaks is such a common idea for those who know about the Bible, for those who grew up in church, We've heard this truth for many, many years, and for some of us, it's actually fallen on hard times and become trivial. Of course God speaks. It's so common for some of us that in our ignorance, we even approach the powerful Word of God, and instead of listening, we begin to speak. When the Word of God is opened, instead of cupping our hand to our ears, we begin to talk. We begin to list out our desires and our preferences and our particular thoughts. Instead of coming to the Bible to hear, we often see it as an opportunity to be heard ourselves. Let's take the advice of the Proverbs and keep silent. Here, particularly in the book of Hebrews, God intends to communicate something to us. And it's a glorious, glorious truth. It's the truths of his son. And if we aren't listening, we'll miss an incredible opportunity. And so this morning, we all like to talk, even the introverts. We all have opinions. We all have something to say. But as we open God's word, as we begin this study, let's make a promise to ourselves. Let's make a promise to the Lord that we'll be quiet and we'll listen to what the word of God has to say to us. I think we'll be helped. I know that we will. It's good for us to know that he's not just spoken in the past to people that are dead and gone, but this morning He is speaking to us. The Father is speaking to us by the Son, and may we as a church never get over that. May we always be a church that preaches expositionally and won't suffer any other method. To this point of the book of Hebrews, we understand that Yahweh has sent us word. He has sent the word, as John puts it. He sent His very son. And now, as we transition, the writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us more about God's son. And here's where we particularly need to begin to listen. He makes a few statements, seven to be exact. To next Sunday, we'll look at the eighth statement that's found in, in verse four. But this morning, we're just going to look at the first seven statements that the writer of Hebrews pr- posits for us. And so, if you're taking notes, you might want to just jot down seven statements concerning the Supreme Son. Seven statements concerning the Supreme Son. I'm going to ask you to just underline or circle each of them as we come to them in Scripture. I'm not going to try to formulate them in any kind of a fancy way. I'll just point to them, and you can highlight them or do what you want uh, as as we come to them. And So seven statements concerning the Supreme Son. What does God want us to know about his Son who is speaking to us on behalf of the Father? What does he want us to know? Number one, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This is what the Scriptures say whom he appointed the heir of all things. And again, I want you to underline or circle that, do whatever, if you've got a highlighter, highlight that. He is appointed the heir of all things. And the subject here is still God the Father. And what has God the Father done? He's the subject. He's the one acting. Well, he has appointed. He has chosen He's given something to someone, and what has he done? He has appointed Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, to be the heir of all things. You need to know that the Old Testament support for these verses is chiefly found in Psalm chapter 2. Throughout the week, if you want to do a little bit of deeper study, it wouldn't hurt you to take a look at Psalm 2 as well as Psalm 110. Both of these passages are the, 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 uh, the Old Testament foundation for what we're looking at today. In Psalm 2, we understand this, we, we read this statement. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son today I have begotten thee. And again, we read later on in that same passage, verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations to you as an inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware." Psalm 2 clearly supports this idea. Hebrews 1 is declaring that Jesus is the heir of all things. And you might be asking this morning, why is Jesus the heir of all things? Well, because Jesus is supreme. That's one of the the great themes of this great book. But particularly, why is he the heir of all things? I would encourage you to consider Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, we see a picture painted for us by John the Revelator. He sees a vision. What's in this vision in this particular chapter? He sees the Father on the throne. He sees a scroll that is brought forth. John begins to weep because no one can open that scroll. Nobody's worthy. We've sung about this and we've preached about this. What is this scroll? In a sense, you could think of it as the, the, the title deed to the earth. No one's able to open it. No one's able to, to own it, to claim it, in a sense. And there's a palpable discouragement. John begins to weep. But one of the elders calls out to John and says, John, don't weep. Don't weep. There's somebody who's worthy. And now the crowd parts. The lamb comes forward. He emerges. Who is this lamb? He is the lamb who conquered. And what is he doing? He's standing in victory as though he had been defeated, but now he is raised victorious. He looks like he's died because he has, but now he's resurrected. And because of his resurrection, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God, left behind the glory of God, took on flesh, endured humiliation as a man even became obedient unto the point of death. And now in his resurrection, the Lamb of God has become the heir of all things. And he takes the scroll and he opens the scroll. He's the heir of all things. Now, you may be asking this morning, if God is the Father and God is the Son, how how do we figure this whole thing out? Well, that's why we have Hubtown kids in here today. That's why we have uh, um, our, uh, what are they called, Catechism Conquerors this morning. Young people, question number three, how many persons are there in God? Come on, don't be afraid. There are. Very good, let's give them a round of applause. Three persons. And the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say that they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is, in fact, God the Son, sent by God the Father to accomplish the work of the cross. And in his resurrection, he stood there in that great vision and took the scroll, having become the heir of all things. But you might be saying, what about this word heir? This word has less to do with someone getting something after a loved one dies and more to do with just becoming the possessor of something or entering into possession of. And so think of it as Christ winning the more excellent name, becoming the heir. He earns this right. He comes into possession not because somebody has died but because, in a sense, he has died. And all things. What does this include? How? What is he the heir of? All things. Well, do you remember in our study of Mark, as Jesus there is baptized and immediately drawn by the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, into the wilderness, and there he faces off in a in a sense with the devil. What does the devil attempt to do to him, if not to make him stumble and sin? What does Satan offer Jesus there in the wilderness? He offers him all things. He offers him to become the ruler of all. And what is he to do in order to get that? He's to bow down and worship Satan, which is the very thing that he's unable to do. And so he denies it. And he knows that the path to get what he will get is not through worshiping Satan. It's not through sin, and yet it's through obedience. Mothers and fathers, Jesus offers us a lesson. This isn't the main idea this morning, but it's something we can't pass over. Satan will offer often what God has promised, yet he will bypass the route that God has planned. He'll often offer you the very thing that God has promised, and yet it'll be bypassing what God has planned to accomplish it through. Think of Sarah and Hagar. God had promised to make Abraham... The father of a great nation and through Sarah, and yet he was tempted through Hagar. In doubt, he went another route. And now we see the same thing happening with Jesus. The cross is the path that God has. God the Father has laid out for God the Son, and yet Satan presents himself with an alternative route. But At any rate, Jesus, even though we fail, he did not fail and he has become the heir of all things. This is the first thing that we're to know as we listen to what the Word of God is saying to us about the Son. But let's keep going. It goes on to give us another participle phrase here it says, Through whom also he created the world. You need to circle that. Through whom also he created the world. Still having God the Father as the subject, working through the Son as the creative agent. This is how God the Father created the world, through God the Son. And that brings an interesting piece of light to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now we know that this creative work was willed by the Father and accomplished through the Son. Psalm 33, verse 6, if you want to write that in your, in your uh, margin there as well. It says this, Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. How does that reconcile with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2? Well, again, another passage that you could write in the margin. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, He, he speaking of the Son, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now that firstborn is similar to heir. It speaks less of being born, not of being born at all, but more of just title, rank of authority. It goes on to say in Colossians 1:16, "For by him all things were created, by whom, by the Son, by the one who is the image of the invisible God, the incarnate Son of God." Whether invisible or visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Indeed, God did create the world, and the active agent was Jesus the Son. Now what's interesting here is the word translated as world in your translation is actually the word ages. Now it's not wrong However, the term has more of a sense of time than just worlds. It kind of helps us to see the the two dimensions of our existence, not just geographically, but also temporal. In other words, Jesus created all things. He created time, time, He created space. He created matter. He created energy. All of these things that we know and exist and we have our our breathing and moving in, Jesus created and was outside of. And then we find out later he steps in too. The scriptures go on to say not only did he create the world, the Father, through the Son, you've circled that or underlined it, But now this third idea at the beginning of verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Now you know what to do with that, the radiance of the glory of God. Mark that down. Highlight it some way. This is what the word of God is coming to you this morning saying, that Jesus, the eternal son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance simply means to send out light, to send out light. This isn't... Speaking, though, of the, of the ontological understanding of who God is. It's not talking about who Jesus is, that he's some sort of light in and of itself. That's his essence. That's not the point. It's speaking more of the, uh, of, of the, uh, the occupation or the work done and the way to understand how they interrelate. You see, God is, is not the sun and Jesus is the Rays. That's uh, wrong, Patrick. That's a heresy known as partialism. Radiance speaks more of the roles of the Trinity, particularly in the incarnation. It's helping us to see that the Son of God is helpful to be understood as the light that comes from the Father shining into creation. He's the Word of God that pierces into existence. He's the rays of the glory of the Godhead that we can feel and bask in. The sun has not come to us. No, it stays in its place, and we're glad that it does. We would be burned up if it came near. But what does come near are the rays of light that actually pierce into our existence. In a similar way, the eternal Son of God, co-equal to the Father, adds to himself a human nature. He enters into our reality. He steps into time and space. And in doing so, he doesn't harm his divine nature. He doesn't impair it in any way, but at the same time he adds to himself a human nature and he dwells among us. And that, dear brothers, is how we and sisters can see the radiance of the glory of God. John chapter 1 verses 9 through 14. We've been in John 1 for a little bit already. Let's go back. John 1 verses 9 through 14. It speaks of Jesus in this way. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made, here again, was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but by God. And here's verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory the glory as of the only a son from the father full of grace and truth do you not see the harmony between these passages of scripture that we're looking at this morning both in the old testament and in the new testament coming together helping us to understand who this son truly is he's the radiance of the glory of god i hope you underlined that but it doesn't stop there goes on and says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. That Jesus the Son is the exact imprint of his nature. You know what to do. Circle that. He's the exact imprint. Exact representation. Another way to maybe say that or to understand it would be unable to tell the difference. You can't tell them apart. This word imprint, it the underlying Greek word, it sounds a lot like character. The character. Well, not character, what you do when no one's looking, but has more the idea of imprint, right? That's why we translated it imprint. Think of a stamp and a seal. You have a metal stamp that's been shaped and fashioned and carved out, and you've got a letter. I know you all send letters this way. Drop a little bit of wax there to seal the envelope, and then you stamp it down with that seal. And if you were to look at the seal of wax and you were to look at that stamp, they would look exactly the same. You can't tell the difference. Now, one's the negative of the other, and that's where this analogy breaks down. But this is what the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to see, that you can't tell the difference. There's not this one has two hands and this one has one hand, or, or this one's looking left and this one's looking up. That's, they're exactly the same. As I mentioned a moment ago, all analogies are very weak, but I'm gonna try anyway, right? Have you ever seen one of those boxes of sliding nails that you get at like novelty gift shops? It's like a little plexiglass on one side and it's got a bunch of nails that are captured in there. And you can shake it this way and all the little pieces of metal, the nails kind of fall down and you can kind of press it up to your face and, and very eerily it retains the impression of your face. This is kind of the sort of idea that we see here God pressed into time and space, and what did we see as a result? We saw the impression of the face of God. God doesn't exist in time and space. But when the eternal Son of God adds to himself a human nature and enters in, now we can see. Now we can behold the radiance of God. And now we know the exact imprint Of his character and of his substance. That word nature there, it could be translated as substance, that which makes it what it is. It's saying that Jesus is the exact imprint of what God is. Jesus, this is said of Jesus, right? But this is also the message that Jesus gave us. Remember, God spoke to us and is speaking to us now in these last days through his son. What has his son say? John chapter 14, verse 9. You should write that down in, your, in, your, in the side margin there. John 14, 9, Jesus is quoted as saying this. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the same substance. There's no difference between us. The Son is of an exact revelation of God the Father that when we see Jesus, brothers and sisters, we see God. But it doesn't end there. We could stop there. We're satisfied. We've learned so much about Jesus. Our love and affection, the the glory of his majesty is basking or we're basking in it this morning and yet there's so much more to be said. And so the message that comes to us this morning that we're listening to continues. It says, and he, speaking of the eternal son, upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know what to do again. Circle, underline, highlight, whatever. He upholds the universe and maybe even include by the word of his power. Now the subject is the sun. He, the sun, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Maybe you've known the, the legend of Atlas. He lost a friendly competition of the gods, false gods, by the way. And he's punished by Zeus. And what sort of punishment does he receive? This big, strong god. God. Well, now he's to hold the world on his shoulders. And you've probably seen the sculpture of it. Strong man, bent low, the weight of the world literally on his shoulders, on his back. And this is kind of what we see the book of Hebrews telling us about Jesus, although he's saying that Jesus is better than Atlas. Atlas is being crushed under the weight of the world. And Jesus, what is he doing? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not crushed under it. Just as his father, who brought the world through him into existence, spoke it into existence through his word. Now he upholds it, not with his back and not with his hands, but with the word of his power, just as we see in Genesis 1. Furthermore, he's better than Atlas in the sense that not only is he not being crushed by it, but he's upholding it just with the word of his power, but he is sustaining it in a dynamic, not static sense. He's been active in his creation of the world, and now he's active as he carries it along throughout the ages. This is the idea. That word there for upholds is not just bears with it, but carries it along, progresses through. And again, this is exactly what we see said of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He's the image of the invisible God, it says. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, And get this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This globe that we are standing on or seated on is spinning. Surprise, surprise. And that spinning from the universe all the way down to what we can observe under a microscope, all of it is consisting and moving and held together together. By the Son of God. As you begin to sew all of these thoughts together, realize this. The Hebrew people hearing this book given to them, these sort of doctrines, they would never have questioned that it was God that created and sustained the world. Clearly they would have agreed that it was Yahweh. Yahweh. The universe was created by him and by the word of his power, and now of Jesus it is said that it is sustained by the word of Jesus' power. I don't think it can get any clearer than this. If this doesn't excite you, you need to be concerned. God is clearly communicating to us that his son is of the same nature as he, that he also is God in the flesh. This passage and and many others are the foundation for early Christian creeds like the uh, 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 Athanasian Creed, which in part says this, the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. What do we know of this creator, who is called the son of God. Well, he's not only the creator, but he's the sustainer. And here's what makes it really, really interesting. This next passage here, this next next phrase, it says, after making purification for sins. So circle that as well. Making purifications for sins. This describes the work of Jesus. Purification. Purification. What is it? Well, he's referencing the author. He's reference, referencing the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, purification was a ceremonial cleansing. And it was, the idea was that it would, in some sense, remove sin. But that's not actually what took place. But here of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus actually fulfilled this. He actually made purification for sins. It wasn't an empty ritual it wasn't just pointing forward to what was going to come it was the actual fulfillment of what was promised he actually made purification for sins the only book to mention sin in the new testament more than hebrews is romans the point i'm making is that hebrews has uh, has sin as a major theme it mentions it 25 times in 13 chapters it's obviously one of the main themes of the book and why because it's a huge problem everybody here knows, or at least should know, that your greatest problem in this life before coming to Christ is the sinfulness in your heart. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That train of thought continues on and says, Everybody who has sinned will also therefore be damned to hell and receive God's just uh, damnation. But here we see that Jesus has addressed our sinful need and has made purification for the sins of his people. Now just kind of tying all that we've gathered so far. It's like walking through Walmart and we've picked up a bunch of things We're listening to a lecture and our papers about to be full. Let's just kind of step back and let's see what we've gathered together. Let's see what's in the buggy, let's see what's on uh, on our piece of paper. The one who created the universe. The one who supports that universe on his back in a sense and spins it with his own strength. The one who sustains a globe inhabited entirely by rebels who are hostile to him. That person, that God, he also made purification for the sins of many of those rebels. Do you see that? The one who sustains and created all things is the one who made purification. And that word is, uh, I don't expect you to know much about this. I, I'm surprised that I do. That word is, in the, is an aorist participle, which means that it was completed in the past. It simply means it was done, completed in the past. It's not continuing to happen. Like when uh, your uh, wife asks you to do the dishes and she calls you and says, All right, how have you done the dishes? Um, the dishes are as good as done. Maybe the reply. Well, that's not completed, right? They're not done. There's still work to be done. There's still work for you to, to do. Maybe even to begin is, the, is part of it. This is not what we see with Jesus. It's completed. And what do we see next? After making purification, what happens next? You should have circled after making purification, and now surely you should circle this. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, this is not a thesis that we're going through. But he is introducing some themes that are we, when we come across them again, they will be familiar to us. And he'll unpack them in a way that will be even more precious and glorious to us. That Jesus sat down. Note that Jesus, after having made purification for sin through his own death, sits at the right hand of the Father. It's clearly a a poetic, inclusive reference to uh, Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and even his heavenly exaltation as the Son, that he would sit down beside the Father on his right hand. One commentator, he caught something that I missed. I'm not surprised by that. It was so good, I've got to include it this morning. He says of this phrase that he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He says this, radiance brings with it the idea of preceding or proceeding from, while seated at the right hand has the idea of returning to. Do you catch that? The glory of God radiating from heaven itself comes down to earth, proceeding from the Father and having completed his work, He now returns back to his father and sits down. The work is finished. And so, again, this has got to be an inclusive reference to Jesus' resurrection after his death, after his sacrifice, and then his ascension to the Father and his exaltation by the Father eternally in heaven. So beautiful. And again, you've got to know that Psalm 110 is the underlying text here. says there in verse 1, of his sitting at the father's side. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Of Jesus' priestly work for the purification of sins, this is what the father says. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Not not spotted garments, not blemished, not torn, holy garments garments. He goes on to say in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You son, you Messiah, you Lord are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll learn more about him in two weeks. And again of his ruling position beside the Father we see in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Sitting clearly indicates completion. And the right hand is a place of honor. Beside God is the highest honor. And so when you hold all of these things together, we understand that when Jesus completed the work that he was sent to do, he returned to the Father and received that place of honor because it was due him. Remember back to the fact that he is the heir of all things. He purchased them with his own blood. He earned the right in this place of honor, having completed what his Father asked him to do. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, are you hearing this? Are you seeing Jesus more clearly? Don't miss this. Jesus is the owner of all things. He's the creator of time and space. He's the incredible radiance of God's glory. He's the exact impression of the Godhead pressed into existence. He vigorously sustains the expansive universe by the word of his power. And he completely purified his church. And when he did, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father where he will be honored forever. And where he now makes intercession for his saints. Here's the second part. Here's the the big idea that we have left. Jesus has been presented. What are we to do? We're to adore him. Jesus is presented to us. This is the message from the Father. What are we to do? How should we respond? We should respond with adoring him. He's spoken to us. Have you gotten over that? Have you gotten over the fact that that hard black Bible in front of you is the very words of the creator that even now sustains you and gives you breath? The one that gives you strength to pray In the name of the Son of God. He's the one who has made purification for our sins. And he's speaking to us. The Father is speaking to us. And what are we to do now that we've looked at this? How are we to respond? We're to respond by looking at Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God. And we're to worship him. The original audience of this book, they knew previously before this book much if not all of what was in the book of Hebrews or the sermon to them and yet this letter still comes to them they needed to be reminded of something what do they need to be reminded of they needed to be reminded and they needed to of, of what Jesus had done for them and they needed to be reminded of what he had promised to do for them And so this message comes to them, and their struggle was to remain focused on the Son despite persecution. You'll see that as we read this book. They had a tough road. Many of them killed. Many of them suffering. Many of them having their properties plundered, things taken from them. And yet they were encouraged to, and many of them did, hold fast to Jesus in spite of persecution. Turn from Jesus or die. Turn from Jesus or suffer the loss of everything you hold dear in this life. That's what they faced. And our plight is much, much different. We face little persecution. But we do have a struggle. And so how are we to understand? Where does the application of Hebrews come to us? What's different? Their struggle was to remain focused on the Son despite persecution. And what is our struggle? To remain focused on the, on the sun despite distraction. Brothers and sisters, there are so many things in this life that are vying for your gaze, that would steal your love and affection for the Lord of all the universe that brought everything into existence and even now sustains it by the word of his power. It would threaten to take your love and affection but this passage comes to us today and it reminds us that our affection, our gaze should not be obstructed or drawn away by lesser things, but that our gaze is to be fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the creator and sustainer of our lives. What's greater? What's more beautiful? What's more majestic than Jesus, the eternal Son of God, Son of God, come to us in these last days with this good news? Nothing. So as we continue this study throughout the weeks, I want to leave you with this thought as we continue on and we ponder this. Often we treat the person of Jesus like we do our young children who want to interrupt us with a trick or a stunt. We graciously, graciously turn away from our phones for a portion uh, of their gig only to quickly return back to focusing on that black mirror. And maybe it's something else for you. Maybe that's not you with your children, but is it you with Jesus? Maybe you think throughout the seven days of your week, you think, well, I've got all these things that I need to give my attention to. And then Jesus is on Saturday night kind of dancing and oohing and awing and saying, hey, can I get your attention just for a minute? I want to show you this cool thing. And you turn away from whatever it is you were going to do. And you say, sure, yeah, I'll look at you, buddy. What's going on? What do you got? And then halfway through the sermon, halfway through the the songs, your gaze is fixed back on whatever you're facing, whatever struggles you're in the middle of, whatever thing you're hoping to secure or possession you hope to buy. May that not be true of us. This message comes to us this morning, Hagerstown Church. Our struggle is to remain focused on the sun despite distractions. Main idea, listen to and adore the Son who is supreme. Let's do that together. Father, in in your kindness, in your mercy, you've reached out to us and you've given us your message. In your kindness and in your mercy, you have given to us these words of the prophets, Who tell about your coming deliverance. Who tell us about your wonderful nature. Who tell us about your justice and your mercy. Who tell us about your Messiah. And Father, we have those things together today. We've referenced them. We've read them. But Father, in your incredible mercy... In our lifetime, we are able to know the fulfillment of all of those promises. We're able to look into your face as we look at Jesus Christ who stepped into time and space to give us this good news. Father, there are so many things in this world that are vying for our attention. And we know that you are using this book to turn our gaze away from these lesser things. Father, we pray that over the course of the, of the next year, as we just humbly and reverently look at this word that you've given to us, that the things of earth would grow strangely.